Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It For was the day. best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. We have no comments again today. But on our last podcast, we discussed how the Patna was rescued by a French gunboat. We told you that nobody died except poor George. And we also covered some of Marlowe's discussion with a French seaman who had been on the Patna at, at the time of its rescue. And uh, uh, remember, that was long after the Patna had happened. So, so it's, it's, a, it's really kind of a, amazing. Now, today, what we want to do is we want to continue our discussion of uh, the Patna. And also, I want to begin uh, to discuss the end of Jim's inquiry. So to help me do this today, my partner in literature is back with me in the studio. Welcome back, Deborah. Thank you. It's good to be here again. As always, with me in the studio today is my faithful producer, Gabe. And uh, he can't say anything because he doesn't have a mic. But anyway, Gabe will be coming on a panel with me before we finish the novel. Now, as I said last time, remember... There is some instruction you need here. Over the next couple of chapters, the reading gets a bumpy, a lot bumpy, really. And uh, essentially what, what uh, Conrad does is like he, uh, he created his own time machine. He jumps forward, gives you some history of Jim, then he jumps backward and uh, takes us to where we were, and then he jumps forward and back. So, so uh, any, anyway, I think once you, once you realize that, then you'll be able to understand it a lot better. All right. Now, one of the things that we did not, uh, maybe maybe I should say we started to discuss, is the idea of fear. And the, the um, if you remember at the last program, we said that Conrad really uh, began to, uh, let's say, reduce his irritation with the French seamen, even though he didn't have wine with his dinner and complained about it. But uh, uh, anyway... Uh, if you remember the discussion, is is this, this French seaman was talking about fear, and but but you really don't die of fear, and uh, you know obviously uh, when you look at what happened on the Patna, you had the three, you had the skipper, the two engineers, and then Jim because of his imagination, they were all just kind of uh, afraid of what was going to happen. Of course, three of them were afraid that they were going to go down with the ship. And, uh, you know, I think Jim was more afraid of losing 800 pilgrims. That's why I, I would read this. And uh, uh, anyway, this, this um, Frenchman is saying, look, everybody, everybody faces fear, and, uh, um, but the, 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 the point is you don't die from it. But then... On page 111 of the book, the Frenchman does make another statement that I think is it's a, it's kind of shocking, and it's something I think we need to talk about. He says right in the middle of the page, it says, man is born a coward. He said, it's a difficulty. It would be too easy otherwise. 
And so, so um, you know, that, that is, that's really, it's Conrad philosophy is what it is. And so, so it's like man, you, you have fear, you have, um, you know, you're a coward, but it's almost like what he's saying is, well, that's what makes life interesting because you have to work to overcome it. So what do you think on that, my friend? Well, it, it does. He says it is a difficulty. It would be too easy otherwise. So I guess it, you know, it does support what you what you said there about it yeah. being and make it more interesting. Um, I mean, life is boring if it's easy. I think yes. that's what Conrad's saying. You know. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, so so, but he's using the Frenchman to do it. Uh, maybe just I'll just I'll just read a little bit more. It says. Uh, he goes on to say, it's a difficulty. It would be easy to otherwise, but habit, habit, necessity, do you see, the eyes of others, and he goes, voila, one puts up with it, and then the example of others who are no better than yourself, and yet make good countenance. So, so, so what he's saying is, hey, man is born a coward, but then there are examples that aren't, that they, they're the heroes. They help you. With by their example to to overcome and not be a coward. Right, right. And uh, uh, but then it, it says there that his voice ceased. Now, I think that I think it's interesting that Marlowe now jumps right in to whose defense to defend Jim. Yeah, yes. he says that young man mm-hmm. you will observe had none of these inducements, at least at the moment. I remarked, and so so uh, I don't know what you understand that to mean, mm-hmm. but. Uh, maybe you can. What, what oh, you well, the way I look at it is, is he didn't have good examples at that point in terms of fear. All he had was those the three that were telling you know George to jump, and they were you know caring. All they cared about was themselves. So, right. so he he didn't have the good inducements at that time. <clears> no, the skipper was just mm-hmm. a louse, and the mm-hmm. two engineers were right. you know. But what what I think is interesting and. Um, Jim had this wild imagination that he was a hero in every situation. So it seems like to me, when we look back on all this, that his imagination was his enemy. It wasn't, it, in other words, it didn't provide him the inducement. That's true. That's true. You know, and so, so anyway, but I, I think Marlowe is really, really uh, sees his youth and he really sees him like a son in, in, in many ways, in many ways. Um, but but the, notice that it said he raised his eyebrows forgivingly, talking about the Frenchman. Mm-hmm. I don't say, I don't say. The young man in question might have had the best dispositions, the best dispositions, he repeated, wheezing a little. And then Marlowe says, I'm glad to see you take a lenient view, I said. His own feeling in the matter was, ah, hopeful, and... No, then he goes on and he talks about the shuffle of his feet under the table interrupted me. He drew up his heavy eyelids, drew up, I say, no other expression can describe the steady deliberation of the act, and at last was disclosed completely to me. I was confronted by two narrow gray circlets, like two tiny steel rings, around the profound blackness of the pupils, the sharp glance coming from that massive body gave a notion of extreme efficiency like a razor edge on a battle axe. <laughs> Pardon, he said punctiliously. His right hand went up and swayed forward. Allow me. I contend that one may get on knowing very well that one's courage does not come of itself, that nothing's, there's nothing much in that to get upset about. 
One truth, the more ought to make life impossible, but the honor, the honor, monsieur, the honor, that is real, that is. And what life may be worth that when he got on his feet with a ponderous impetuosity, as a startled ox might scramble up from the grass, when the honor is gone, I can offer no opinion. I can offer no opinion because, monsieur, I know nothing of it. So, so, mm. what what was Jim lacking there? Honor, yes. Honor, yes. And if you think Mar- Marla was really trying to defend him, but then at that point, you know, he, he kind of kind of um, they couldn't defend him then at that point with about the honor. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, so, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, it, it was it was really really sad. Yeah. A little bit further, it says. Hang the fellow. He had pricked the bubble. <laughs> in other words, he said it was like he really wanted to defend Jim, and but here this Frenchman pricked his bubble. You know about about Jim. You yeah, know. he couldn't do it. Yeah, he couldn't do it to the Frenchman. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I think in in some ways, you know, uh, you know, I've known French people over the years, and they they're pretty uh, sharp edged sometimes. You know, that with their philosophy, if they have a firm enough idea, they keep firm. And so, uh, but it also sounds like he's very wise, mm-hmm. you know. So for being a fat guy, mm-hmm. he kind of reminds me a little bit of Job of the Hut when they, when he exp- <laughs> when he describes him. So now everybody out there knows I'd like Star Wars. All right, but notice bottom of the page one twelve, and uh, this is where I think we um, uh, Marlowe's getting us ready to get back, jump back in time, <laughs> jump back to the inquiry. Notice he says, or I sat down again alone and discouraged, discouraged about Jim's case. If you wonder that after more than three years it had preserved its actuality, you must know that I had seen him only very lately. I had come straight from Samarang, where I had loaded a cargo for Sydney, an utterly uninteresting bit of business, what Charlie here would call one of my rational transactions, and in Samarang, I had seen something of Jim. Now, this can be really this can be really confusing to people when when you're talking about the Frenchman. He's you know he's gotten the Frenchman's left the dinner, and he's talking about Jim. And what you have to understand out there, readers, is it's like his he's jumping back in time. You know, it's it's a uh, it, it's it's amazing. It's like. The inquiry is already over, and that's what you have to see in, in, with this conversation. Supposedly it's already over. The decision has been made, even though we don't know all the details. And he's telling us that, uh, that he, said, I, he saw something of Jim, and he was then working for the Zhang. On my recommendation, here's a water clerk. And so, so, so in, in some ways, when you hear him say that he was discouraged about Jim's case, He's thinking back to the end of the inquiry, and Jim has already moved on. He's now a water clerk, you know, with a different company. And so, in other words, the inquiry's over and all that, even though he hasn't told us about it. So, so that's where I think um, I've talked to some students that have read the whole book, and they say it, it does get really confusing when he jumps back and forth, you know, quite a bit. So, so anyway, but then. <clears throat> Then uh, on page 113, just to help all of you out there that are 
they're maybe reading this or struggling reading through it, is is uh, um, you know Marlowe. You know, obviously he's he's been a seaman for a long time, and he knows of other cases where there were ship ship sinking, and the crew then is criticized for how they've handled it. And and here on page one thirteen, he talks about the Sephora disaster, and it's a long story, but it's totally an inset. It has nothing to do with Jim. You know, it's it's to do with another uh, another seaman, and his name was Little Bob Stanton. And uh, if you go to the top of page one thirteen, it says the same who got drowned after trying to save a lady's maid in the Sephora disaster. A case of collisions on a hazy morning off the Spanish coast, you may remember. So, so uh, you know, he's talking to us, but we have no idea what's going on, you know. And he's, he's talking to us like we're seamen. And he said, all the passengers have been packed tidily uh, into the boats and shoved clear of the ship when Bob sheared alongside again and scrambled back on deck to fetch that girl. How she had been left behind, I can't make out. Anyhow, he had gone completely crazy, wouldn't leave the ship, held, uh, or she had gone completely crazy, wouldn't leave the ship, held to the rail like grim death. The resting match would be seen plainly from the boats, but poor Bob was the shortest chief mate in the merchant service, and the woman stood five feet ten in her shoes and was strong as a horse, I've been told. So it went on, pull devil, Pool Baker, the wretched girl screaming all the time, and Bob letting out a yell now and then to warn his boat to keep well clear of the ship. One of the hands told me, hiding a smile at the recollection, it was all for the world, sir, like a naughty youngster fighting with his mother. The same old chap said that at the last we could see that Mr. Stanton, remember it's Bob Stanton, had given up hauling at the gal and just stood by looking at her watching like. We thought afterwards he must have been reckoning maybe the rush of water could tear her away from the rail and by and by give him a show to save her. We daren't come come alongside for our life. And after a bit, the old ship went down on a sudden with a lurch to starboard plop. The suck in was something awful. We never saw anything alive or dead come up. Poor Bob's spell of shore life had been one of the complications of a love affair, I believe. So... So, in other words, if you just go on and keep reading, one of his cousins put him up to becoming a seaman. He really didn't want to be a seaman, and he drowned. That's really sad. <laughs> it's really sad. Yeah. But, but, again, but it's comical, though. It's way. comical, but yeah. it's also, I think, comparing Jim with someone else. Right. And at that point, it says that all of the the people had been put on other ships and you know, the boats so the boat and the boats and they were keeping the boats away from the ship and all that so they they kind of they they were doing things right i guess right know, in, that, in that case right. Mm-hmm. all right so so that's mm-hmm. the, the anyway uh on page 114 he goes on to talk about how the patent the case keeps cropping up i mean people were talking about this for years and so uh in some ways he's getting us ready for what happens to Jim after the inquiry, and we already know a little bit. He's already, uh, you know, he's already working as a water clerk for another company, and so. Um, but because the patent case keeps coming up, and every time Jim's here, Jim's Jim hears it, he moves on to another job because he doesn't want to be associated with it. All right. So now let's go to the middle of page one fourteen. 
and again, I think this this will help all of you um, uh, as you read this. And again, he gives us no clue for this, but he says, I sat thinking of him after the French lieutenant had left, not, however, in connection with the Jong's cool and gloomy back shop, back shop, where we had hurriedly shaken hands not very long ago, but as I had seen him years before in the last flickers of the candle, alone with me in the long galley of the Malabar house with the chill and the darkness of the night in his back. So now what he does is he begins taking us back to his dinner meeting at the Malabar. And so, so uh, uh, anyway, it, it, that can really get confusing for you. So we're back you know, at the Malabar, and uh, uh, if you go down to the bottom of page 114, he's, he talks there, he says, he was guilty as I had told myself repeatedly, guilty and done for. Nevertheless, I wish to spare him the, de- the mere detail of a formal execution. I don't pretend to explain the reasons of my desire. I don't think I could. But if you have got a notion about by this time, then I must have been very obscure in my narrative or are you too sleepy to seize upon the sense of my words? So essentially, you know, what, what he's uh, doing here in the, this paragraph is he's talking to the people on the veranda. You know, he's, he's, he's going back to his dinners, but he's talking about the time at the Malabar. And then he slips into the Malabar. Um, uh, uh, anyway, he, he goes on to say... Um, He says, there was no morality in the impulse. This is page 115. There was no morality in the impulse which induced me to lay before him Briley's plan of evasion. I may call it in its primitive simplicity. There were the rupees absolutely ready in my pocket and very much at his service. Oh, alone, alone, of course. And if an introduction to a man in Rangoon who could put some work in this way, why, with the greatest pleasure I have... I had pen, ink, and paper in my room on the first floor, and even while I was speaking, I was impatient to begin the letter, day, month, year, 2.30 a.m., for the sake of our old friendship. I ask you to put some work in the way of Mr. James so-and-so. So so he's talking about uh, some of the things that he was intending to do for Jim because he knew what was going to happen to him. He knew he was going to lose. And and uh, he also knew that in a sense he was guilty because he did jump off the ship. And so even though no one died, you know he was still, he, I guess as a seaman or as a chief mate, you don't do that. You don't abandon ship until everybody is off. You know so so uh, uh, anyway, but but that's where uh, everybody. This is where and now again it breaks off. It's like. The, the frame narrator doesn't step in, but you have to pick it up really quickly that he's talking to everybody on the veranda again. Um, <clears throat> if we just um, go on now, um, he, he explains that he was talking to Jim. We go to the very bottom of page 115. He's telling to Jim, um, he, uh, Jim, Jim, we know Jim doesn't want to... Uh, you know, he doesn't want to leave the inquiry um, because he had jumped off the ship. So he, he's definitely sticking with the inquiry. And, he, and essentially, at the bottom, he says, uh, there was something fine in the wildness of his unexpressed, hardly formulated hope. Clear out, 
couldn't think of it, he said with a shake of the head. I make you an offer which I neither demand nor expect any sort of gratitude, I said. You shall repay the money when convenient. And awfully good of you, he muttered without looking up. I watched him narrowly. The future must have appeared horribly uncertain to him, but he did not falter as though indeed there had been nothing wrong with his heart. I felt angry, and for the first time that night, the whole wretched business, I said, is bitter enough, I should think, for a man of your kind. It is, it is, he whispered twice, with his eyes fixed on the floor. It was heartrending. He towered above the light, and I could see the down on his cheek, the color mantling warm under the smooth skin of his face. Believe me or not, I say it was outrageously heartrending. It provoked me to brutality. Yes, I said, and allow me to confirm, confess that I am totally unable to imagine what advantage you can expect from licking of the dregs. And so he's saying, he's really trying to justify that he should just run. And he said, what, what good is it going to do you if you just stay back and lick it all up? In other words, you know, the, the skipper had run, the two engineers had run, everybody had run. He says, what, what advantage do you think you're going to get out of it? He said, advantage, he murmured out of the stillness. I am dashed if I do, I said, and enraged. I, if meditating something unanswerable, but after all, it is my trouble. I opened my mouth to retort and discovered suddenly that I had lost all confidence in myself and it was as if he, too, had given up, for he mumbled like a man, thinking half aloud, went away, went into hospitals. Not one of them would face it. They, he moved his hand slightly to imply disdain. But I got to get over his thing. But I've got to get over this thing, and I mustn't shirk any of it, or I won't shirk any of it. He was silent. He gazed as though he had been haunted his unconscious face reflecting the expression of scorn, of despair, of resolution, reflected them in turn as a magic mirror would reflect the gliding passage of unearthly shapes. And so so, it, so you can see that, that that would really kind of make Jim want to even stick with it because, you know, he had jumped ship. He, he didn't want to, you know, he wanted to stand there and, and take it, I guess. He wanted to prove himself. And in some ways, you know, the Frenchman said, ah, oh, the honor. But if you think about Jim, he was honorable. He was trying to have honor there, yes. Very mm-hmm. much so. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, uh, anyway, um, if we just go down to the bottom of page 116, and again, for all of you readers out there, just make sure you read everything. Take your time and read it. Some of it is... Uh, it's a little hard to follow, but it's all well worth reading. It says, well, he had refused his unique offer. He had struck aside my helping hand. He was ready to go now and beyond the balustrade. So this is at the, the Malabar restaurant. And you have to re- remember, this is well into the morning. I mean, this is, you know, it's well after midnight and they're still out there at night. He said he was ready to go now and beyond the balustrade. The night seemed to wait for him very still as though he had been marked down for its prey. And again, that's that's a total Conrad image. Is is uh, he sees Jim going into darkness? You know, he's going further into darkness, and now he's he's the prey of the darkness. I heard his voice. Ah, here it is. He had found his hat. For a few seconds, we hung in the wind. What will you do after? After I asked very low. Go to the dogs, as likely as not. He answered in a gruff mutter. 
I had recovered my wits in a measure and judged best to take it lightly. Pray remember, I said, that I should like very much to see you again before you go. I don't know what's to prevent you. He said, the thing won't make me invisible, he said with intense bitterness. No such luck. And then at the moment of taking leave, he treated me to a ghastly muddle of dubious stammers and movements to an awful display of hesitations. He said, God forgive him, me. He had taken it into his fanciful head that I was likely to make some difficulty as to shaking hands. It was too awful for words. I believe I shouted suddenly at him as you would bellow to a man you saw about to walk over a cliff. I remember our voices being raised, the appearance of a miserable grin on his face, a crushing clutch of my hand, a nervous laugh. The candle sputtered out. The thing was over at last, with a groan that floated up to me in the dark. He got himself away somehow. The night swallowed his form. He was a horrible bungler, horrible. I heard the quick crunch crunch of the gravel under his boots. He was running, absolutely running, with nowhere to go. And he was not yet four and twenty. And so so uh, that's the end of the dinner now. That's not the end of the inquiry. So he did. He did what Barley suggested, offered him the rupees. And what did Jim do? He said no. He said, <clears throat> he said, I may have jumped, but I don't run away. Yep. So that's mm-hmm. that's uh, that's the way he felt. All right. Mm-hmm. So we're moving along. Here we are, going into chapter fourteen. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting. After all this stuff we've covered, now we're going to go to the last day of the inquiry, and uh, this is chapter fourteen, page one one seventeen. Um, notice, uh, uh, this is after the this is the night after the dinner or the morning after the dinner, he says, I slept little, hurried over my breakfast, and after a slight hesitation, gave up my early morning visit to my ship. And again, Conrad is just so amazing how he incorporates this little story about his chief mate who's having problems with his marriage. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if we really need to read all this or not. He said, it was very wrong of me because though my chief mate was an excellent man all around, he was the victim of such black imaginings that if he did not get a letter from his wife at the expected time, he would go quite distracted with rage and jealousy, lose all grip on the work, quarrel with all hands, and either weep in his cabin or develop such a ferocity of temper as all but drove the crew to the verge of mutiny. <laughs> so so it's, it's like his chief mate was a good guy, but what was the chief mate's problem? It's almost like he can't help himself. He always has to describe everybody, you yeah. know. And the and the, describe, the descriptions are really amazing, <laughs> really. Yeah. And there's a little story with the description. Yeah. But mm-hmm. the, what what was the chief mate's problem? It was his imagination. Mm-hmm. If his wife didn't write him a letter when he thought she should write it, he thought she's having an affair. And uh, you know what does Conrad say? I mean, he saw what she looked like. <laughs> he said, uh, you know, he, he couldn't understand why he'd be so. He said, the thing had always seemed inexplicable to me. They had been married 13 years. I had a glimpse of her once, and honestly, I couldn't conceive a man abandoned enough to plunge into sin for the sake of such an unattractive person. <laughs> so, so I, don't know, I thought that was really funny. He says, I don't know whether I have not done wrong by refraining from putting that view before poor Selvin. 
The man made a, made a little hell on earth for himself, and I also suffered indirectly, but some sort of doubt, false delicacy, prevented me. The marital relations of semen would make an interesting subject, and I could tell you instances. <laughs> so, so then, this is funny, he's talking to us, like, but, but, I, but I have this feeling, it's like we're sitting on the veranda with all of his friends. Mm-hmm. Because he feels like he's talking to you, but he's really talking to all them. He says, however, this is not the place nor the time, and we are concerned with Jim, who was unmarried. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was. He was in big trouble. So, um, anyway, do uh, you have anything you want to say on that page? I know you've read this. Well, just you want to go down talking about the inquiry? Yes. Okay. Well, it just he he, he uh, summarizes. <clears throat> excuse me. Summarizes the towards the bottom of page one eighteen. Um, the bitterness of his punishment was in its chill and mean atmosphere, and then he says the real significance of crime is in its being a breach of faith with the community of mankind. And, and from that point of view, he was no mean traitor, but his execution was, a, I don't know what that means, a hole-and-corner affair. I'm not sure what that means. I don't know what that means. But, but, um, but it's something about the, it's like his crime was bringing a breach of faith with community. I thought that was interesting that that's what, you know, what his crime, the yeah. significance of crime in general. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. But, but the other, anything... The other thing is execution. It makes you think that they're going to cut his head off or they're going to hang him or something. That's really not what it means. I mean, he says there was no high scaffolding, no scarlet cloth. They did not have scarlet cloth on Tower Hill. Uh, They should have had. um, And I don't know what that means either. No awe-stricken multitude to be horrified at his guilt and be moved to tears at his fate. No air of somber retribution. There was, as I walked along, the clear sunshine, a brilliance too passionate to be consoling, the street full of jumbled bits of color like a damaged kaleidoscope. So, uh, again, there's a lot of details there before he even gets into to the inquiry. So, um, you know what? It's that time again. We're out of time for this program. So, anyway, that doesn't mean we don't have material for the next one. And so uh, uh, that's all the time we have for today's program. But next time, Deborah and I will continue to discuss Jim's life after the inquiry. Now, we will talk about the last last day of the inquiry as well. Now, you can buy Lord Jim at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. Of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you have to jbl at pcrg.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. And so until next time, keep reading. been listening to just the best literature on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg streaming online at kpcg.fm and the trumpet.com